Well, I want to begin with a contrast. The New Testament concludes with a revelation, while the Old Testament ends with a nightmare. Zedekiah was one of the last kings of Judah. 2 Kings 25 tells his story. He sinned against God and he angered the enemy of God whom God had raised up against him. Babylon was God's tool of judgment on Zedekiah's kingdom. When the invaders breached the walls of Jerusalem, Zedekiah, he tried to escape. He didn't get far. He was captured near Jericho and chained in bronze fetters. Well, the Babylonians wanted to humiliate their defeated foe. They wanted to rub it in, make an example. So with Zedekiah standing right there, the king of Babylon executed his sons before his very eyes. Then, with that horrific scene still fresh in his mind, the Babylonians took a hot poker and they plucked out Zedekiah's eyes. Thus, the last lingering image carved into the king's psyche, the last sight he saw before the lights went out for good, was the bloody slaughter of his boys. This had to have scarred Zedekiah. I mean, the sight of sons squirming in agony was indelibly stamped on his soul. This is the kind of trauma from which a person never recovers. And yet Zedekiah's nightmare vision was no more earth-shaking, no more life-changing than John's revelation. The apostle is an old man. He's doing hard time on a rock island. As the last disciple still standing, he's the only person on earth eligible to add to the canon of Scripture. Thus, just before John closes his eyes for the last time, God communicates to him a revelation. And it moves him emotionally and physically. John writes what he sees. Then he sends it to the churches. John intends, or God intends, for revelation to be the last lingering image burned into the collective psyche of his church. Zedekiah never shook this nightmare. And God wants the church to never take its eyes off John's revelation. It will shape our soul and inspire our faith. Well, Revelation is one of the few Bible books that begin with a title. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated revelation is the term apocalypse. Now in our culture, apocalypse has become synonymous with cataclysm and destruction and impending doom. But to the Greeks, it simply meant an unveiling or uncovering. Imagine walking into an art gallery and a sculpture by a famous artist lies there under the canvas. At the appropriate moment, the curator, he rips off the fabric, revealing the beauty and the genius of the sculptor's work. Well, this is the revelation. Jesus Christ is alive and well, but we don't see his excellence, for he is hidden behind a heavy canvas that separates the spiritual realm from this tangible world. And yet, in Revelation, John rips away the veil. He reveals Jesus in all of his splendor. I like how Paul Mello translates the opening words of verse 1. He says, the official portrait of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the official oil painting commissioned every time a U.S. president leaves office. 
The tradition began in 1796. At that time, several artists attempted to paint George Washington, but it took Gilbert Stuart to paint a worthy likeness. Well, when it comes to the official portrait of Jesus Christ, God got it right the first time. He called on John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, to be its artist. Now before we're done, John's going to paint a whole array of detail, provocative details. We're going to talk about falling stars and beasts and hailstones and plagues and marks and the whore of Babylon. And we can get sidetracked by it all. That's why it's important to remember from the outset the theme of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. As one author puts it, the theme isn't 666. It's holy, holy, holy. The point of revelation is not just the unleashing of judgment. It's the unveiling of Jesus. This is what God wants permanently burned into our perspective. Well, John writes of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. In other words, here's what's next. Here's what's coming up on God's agenda. Now understand what John had already seen. He was Jesus' cousin, Mary's nephew. He and Jesus grew up together. John was there when Jesus began his ministry. John saw Jesus walk on water and multiply lunch and heal a blind man and supernaturally locate fish. That can come in handy for a fisherman. John writes in another place, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Jesus was that word. The meaning of life with God before time began. Jesus took on flesh and blood and became a man. He revealed the Almighty's humility. And John witnessed this first revelation of Jesus. John was there when the Roman executioners nailed him to a piece of wood. He was there three days later when news came that the grave was empty. For 40 days, John was there and spent time with the risen Christ. And John was there on top of the Mount of Olives. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, John saw his Lord return to glory, victorious, an acceptable sacrifice, a faithful high priest. Yes, John was there for it all. And John did exactly what he had been told. He and his fellow disciples, they went into all the world to tell people what they had seen and heard and their hands had handled. But now John is alone. The other disciples are all dead. Jesus has been gone 60 years and John is wondering, what's next? What's next for him? What's next for Christianity? Jesus had come preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was there when Jesus launched his kingdom. But now it's running headlong into the kingdoms of man. Christians are being attacked by the Roman Empire. The Emperor Nero has already had Peter crucified. He's had Paul beheaded. Others are on the chopping block. What's next for this kingdom? You see, John needed a new revelation. He needed a fresh perspective. He knows that Jesus is no longer a bloody corpse. His sacrificial work is finished. He's risen and ascended. But what's next? Well, the answer is this revelation. And Jesus sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now notice, Jesus sent and signified this message. The word signified can mean to express by signs. This word has led some Bible teachers to see this book as a message encoded with signs and symbols. When John received this prophecy, he was a prisoner of Rome. The Romans weren't too fond of manifestos that predicted the coming of kings and kingdoms that threatened to usurp Roman rule. Thus, to avoid censorship, John's letter employed signs and symbols. You could call this book a cryptogram, a coded message. Its symbolism enabled it to slip past Roman security yet still be understood by Christian readers. And what better symbols to use, what better code to use than Old Testament symbols? This is why the key to interpreting Revelation is to familiarize yourself with Hebrew idioms and imagery. Of the book's 404 verses, 278 quote Old Testament references. That's more than 70%. There's another 360 Old Testament inferences in this book. You know, it's been said the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And that is especially true of Revelation. Verse 3 attaches a special promise to this book. Blessed is he who reads. And those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Any attempt to read and obey this book will be met by God with a blessing. You know, though parts of Revelation are tough to interpret, God always rewards a sincere effort. He wants this book especially branded on our hearts. This is what's next. John continues his introduction. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you in peace. Here's the common New Testament greeting, grace and peace. But not only does John greet the members of these churches, so does the triune God. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, they too issue a greeting. This revelation is from Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is God. Notice God doesn't just have lots of time. He dwells outside of time. He occupies the past and the present and the future all at the same time. This is how God can see the end from the beginning. Think of it. God was. He is the God of history. In fact, history is His story. But God also is. He is always in the moment. Psalm 46 verse 1 calls him a very present help in trouble. And God also is to come. His presence, his purpose, his power fill up our future. A central theme of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. But you've got to understand, God is always coming. To a troubled marriage, he comes. To a heartbroken teenager, he comes. To a depressed housewife, he comes. To an out-of-work dad, he comes. To a believer struggling with doubts, he comes. To the rebel on the run, God comes. This is God's favorite posture. He is coming. And John also brings greetings from the Holy Spirit. He says, from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now admittedly, this is some difficult terminology. We know from the rest of Scripture that there is only one Holy Spirit. He is an individual, not seven different spirits. 
This seems to be a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 verse 2 describes this for us when it talks about how the Spirit empowered Jesus. There we read, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is how the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus, His life, and how the Holy Spirit works through us, the church. He supplies wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And then last but not least, the readers of Revelation are greeted from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Hey, in all that Jesus did, in all that He said, He represented His Father faithfully. He is the faithful witness. He is the truth teller. This is the true no-spin zone. Jesus gives it to us straight. He always does. And then Jesus is also, he identifies himself as the firstborn from the dead. His body was first to undergo the metamorphosis. Paul describes it. This corruptible body must put on incorruption. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus was first to escape not only death but decay. Now his resurrection gives the same hope to his followers. Jesus is the truth teller. He's the grave robber. And he's the ultimate ruler. John calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. This was important to the believers in Asia. At the time, Christianity was an oppressed minority. And yet the revelation received by John and passed on to the churches was so convincing that those who read it knew that it was only a matter of time before the rulers of this world bowed before Jesus. That he would ultimately reign. Jesus is the truth teller, the grave robber, the ultimate ruler. He's also the soul lover and the sin cleanser. John writes in verse 5, To him who loved us. Jesus loved us at his first revelation and he loves us still. So much so, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Hey, the priest offered a proxy sacrifice. He offered the blood of a goat or a lamb or, or a, uh, a bull. Jesus didn't offer a proxy. It wasn't the blood of some lamb that he offered. It was his own blood. He loved us that much. And then he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Jesus is also the glory sharer and the priest maker. Hey, our destiny is to rule with Jesus. He'll end the long-running revolt of Satan and strip the devil of all his authority. Then he'll share it with us. And he'll make us priests. There will be a priestly cast in heaven. For all eternity, the followers of Jesus, you and I, will enjoy unrivaled proximity and access to the Almighty. You know, it's interesting. Like the Holy Spirit, Jesus also has seven functions. He's the truth teller and the grave robber and the ultimate ruler, and the soul lover, and the sin washer, and the glory sharer, and the priest maker. And how should we respond to all of this? John shouts it out. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We need to praise him. We need to shout amen. It means to agree. Man, when John thought it all through, he couldn't help himself. He agreed. Amen i got to tell you, I miss Anna's daddy. Some of you might remember Anna's daddy. You know, in a stiff, 
mostly Caucasian bred crowd that we've got here at Calvary Chapel. Anna's daddy, he wasn't bashful, man. He was emotional. He wasn't afraid to express himself. I'd be pray, preaching and I'd make a statement he knew was true. And man, he'd just shout it out, Amen! And if he really liked it, he'd say, Amen and Amen! I like that. The truth moved him. And I think we all need to be moved by the truth. For one truth is certain. Jesus is not done moving. John writes in verse 7, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. Jesus is coming back to this earth. He's been here before, and He's coming back. Now technically, there are actually two second comings of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus comes in the clouds for His church. The lost world won't know what hit them. But here He comes with clouds. And every eye will see Him. This is an in-your-face coming. Jesus will return to settle scores and judge all wickedness. And we'll talk about this much later. But Jesus comes in the clouds at the rapture. He'll surprise the world and take His church. But then He'll also come with clouds on the final day. That's the day He'll touch down on the Mount of Olives to end man's rebellion and establish a political kingdom. And notice the addendum to verse 7. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. This refers to Zechariah 12, verse 10, and the Jews. It's a prophetic irony. In the end, the Jews will realize their mistake. They crucified their Savior. They wounded their healer. And that's only one of the reactions that will occur on the final day. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, He's been sitting now at God's right hand, He's finished His work of salvation and His Spirit has been busy gathering in His church. But once the church is caught up, God's wrath will come down. A Christ-rejecting world will be punished. Hey, today the folks around us, they may, be, they may mock the idea. They may not want to believe it, but they won't escape either. I like how Vance Habner puts it. He says, some of us get laughed at by the swivel chair experts in eschatology. But when God splits the skies and the stars fall and the moon turns to blood and men cry for rocks and mountains to fall on them, it's going to be pretty hard for some of us to keep from saying, I told you so. Jesus came to earth the first time to pardon, but He's coming the second time to punish. The Lamb of God that was laid on the altar is also the lion who will roar. Guys, it's a jungle out there. Because of man's sin and rebellion, the Garden of Eden is now overgrown and overrun with weeds and full of dangerous predators. But Jesus is king of the jungle. Jesus will return to flex His muscle and fulfill His will. It'll be, I told you so, kind of day. Right now, the skeptics scoff. If He's alive, where is He? Well, on that day, every eye will see Him. Only then it'll be too late. This is why John writes in verse 7, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. They'll mourn. But they were warned. They just never took heed. For many people, history is going to have an unhappy ending. John himself sighs about it all. Verse 7, Even so, Amen. And here Jesus interjects, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. 
Alpha and Omega were the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm the A to Z. I got this started, but I'm going to finish it up. I'm the beginning, I'm the end, and I'm all that's in between. Then Jesus takes the title that was earlier attributed to the Father. He calls himself the one who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Obviously, Jesus is making a bold claim. He's claiming to be God. He says, I am equal to the Father. They hold the same exalted titles and traits. Verse 9 gets back to John's introduction. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, around 90 AD, a second wave of persecution washed over the church. Emperor Domitian decided to follow in Nero's footsteps. This time, John was arrested. And he was sentenced to be boiled alive in a cauldron of oil. God, though, intervened. John miraculously survived the ordeal. And since he couldn't kill him, Domitian banished John to Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's 10 miles long by 6 miles wide. It's 15 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's barren and rocky and desolate. In the first century, it held a penal colony where Roman prisoners were sent to do hard labor. Patmos was the first century Alcatraz. Now understand, John is now 90 plus years old. He's frail and feeble. He has scars over most of his body, souvenirs he picked up from his brush with death in the boiling oil. Now he's pounding a hammer in a rock quarry. And John was not the only believer suffering under Domitian's reign of terror. All across the empire, Christians were being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And it made John think. Now remember, to this point, all John has seen is the first revelation of Jesus. The Son of God became a baby. He came to earth through the lowest door. I mean, deity in a diaper? I mean, could God have made himself more vulnerable than to come as an infant? John knew Jesus had experienced all our human limitations. He had subjected himself. He was God, but he had laid aside its perks. And Jesus came as a servant. He could have thrown his weight around and intimidated us into compliance. Instead, he overwhelmed us with his grace. It was his mercy and his tenderness that disarmed us and slipped past our defenses. Our hearts were won by His love. And then to bear our punishment, Jesus made Himself defenseless. He laid bare His back to take our stripes. But John now has some stripes of his own. Ever seen a burn victim? Imagine John covered with these kinds of scars. He's thankful Jesus has won his heart, but who is going to win his battles? John is in a fight. A war is raging. Good versus evil. God versus Satan. They're slugging it out. It's a jungle out there. Oh, John believed in Jesus, but he needed more than a servant to model or even a savior to rely on. For John to endure the hardships that he and his friends faced, they needed a hope in a conquering king. John and the persecuted church needed a second revelation. 
the unveiling of an exalted, glorified Christ. They needed a Savior who's also the heavyweight champion. Once there was a middle-aged woman with an incurable disease. She checked into the hospital. Her days were numbered. One night she had a vision. She was visited by her guardian angel. He told her that she would live another 30 years. She was so excited. She thought, man, well, if I'm going to live another three decades, I'm going to do it with some style. Since she was in the hospital, she ordered a facelift, some liposuction, and a tummy tuck. Well, just as she left the hospital, after all the surgery, she was headed to her car, walking across the parking lot. When she got hit by a truck, she died instantly. When she got to heaven, she looked up her angel. She was so mad. She said, you told me I'd live another 30 years. The angel answered, yeah, but I didn't recognize you. <laughs> hey, I'm afraid that this is most people's problem with Jesus. They don't recognize him. They don't see clearly the first revelation of our Lord, let alone the second. You know, over the years, artists have painted some pathetic portraits of Jesus. They depict him as weak and frail. Others paint him as, he, as if he glows in the dark. Or they got him wearing pearly white robes and he takes a sissified posture. Others have him using curlers, putting curlers in his hair. He looks suspiciously effeminate. It's tragic what they've done to Jesus. These artists need to repent and repaint. We've taken the guy who got angry at the Pharisees, who took a whip and bounced the crooks from the temple. We've turned him into gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Hey, the real Jesus was a carpenter who liked to fish. He was a man's man, a blue-collar guy. He pounded nails before power tools. And he sure wasn't afraid of a fight. And if Christians today have confused Jesus, the Jesus who lived among us, they have no clue as to what he looks like today and how he will appear when we see him. This is why we too need a second revelation. Certainly Jesus is still a man, but he is a glorified man. Jesus' humility was temporary. Now he's back on the throne, but with the new authority that he's won on earth. Realize the person we serve and follow, he no longer walks on water. That's just kid stuff now. Today he rides on clouds. He rules in heaven and he commands an army and he doles out justice as well as mercy. This is the revelation John received on Patmos and sends to the seven churches. What's next? I'll tell you what's next. It's a glorified Christ. Well, John recalls when this revelation came to him. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was a Sunday. It's interesting. Already the early church was living in wake of the resurrection. You know, Jews hold services on the Sabbath, but Christians meet on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose. Sundays were treated like many Easter's. Oh, the first church, they preached Christ crucified, but they didn't leave Him there. Jesus rose to reign. After this revelation, they all knew to live in the light of the exalted Christ. John was in the Spirit. That means he was dialed in. He was logged on. He was worshiping and communing with God. When all of a sudden, he heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. At his first revelation, Jesus launched God's kingdom spiritually. And he will finish what he started. He'll also bring his kingdom to earth in power and glory. He is the beginning and he is the end. And this shapes our duty as Christians. We are part of the spiritual kingdom that is serving and saving. And we are called to help. But we'll win over temptation and over opposition only if we know what's next. We'll be propelled to victory through this revelation. Ultimately, all wrongs will be righted. Good will triumph. God's people will win in the end. The triumphant Christ is next. This is the theme of John's revelation. And this is the key to our victory. Then Jesus said to John, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now this isn't an exhaustive list of the churches in first century Asia. There were more. But Jesus chose these seven churches for a reason. And we'll talk about it next week. But right now, verse 12, the plot thickens. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now John is going to describe for us Jesus in all of his glory. But before we read it, notice where Jesus hangs out. He is in the midst of the lampstands. Now later we learn that the seven lampstands, or the seven branch menorah, is a symbol for the seven churches of Asia. In the Old Testament temple, the priest was in charge of lighting and tending to the menorah. Likewise, the church, the New Testament temple, in the church, Jesus is our priest. And thus, he too works to keep the menorah filled with oil. Jesus works among the churches to keep us filled with the Holy Spirit, with the oil of the Spirit. He keeps our light shining brightly. You see, what's next in God's kingdom is Jesus. But it's interesting to see where Jesus hangs out. He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's in his church. This is why I'm always saying to you, if you love Jesus, you will love his church. The church is where the action is. Where is Jesus working in the world today? In his church. He doesn't promise that you'll find him at the Rotary Club or in the midst of the seven little leagues or at the PTA or at the political action committee or whatever else you're involved in. Jesus prefers to work in and through his church. He told his disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Well, John sees Jesus. He's still a man. Son of man speaks of his humanity. But John recognizes him as only like the Son of Man. His visage was very different than what John had remembered. You see, the revelation that John now sees doesn't stack up with the Jesus whom he heard and saw and his hands handled. This is the warrior and ruler, not just the servant and savior. John is about to describe the king of the jungle. And he starts with what Jesus wears to work. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet. 
You know, commoners and peasants, they wore knee-length robes. Only a king's robe drugged the ground. At his first revelation, Jesus hung naked on a cross. Now, today, he's clothed in royal robes. And he's girded about the chest with a golden band or a priestly breastplate. Jesus is king and priest. Ancient Israel observed a separation of church and state. The king was forbidden to be priest. But Jesus abolishes the separation clause. He rules on God's throne as king, and he works in God's temple, the church, as priest. And then notice him in verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Years ago, I had an album cover that tried to replicate this portrait of Jesus. <laughs> the result was, was sort of grotesque. I mean, don't try to envision this portrait literally. Again, the key is to see Jesus through the Old Testament eyes. And for starters, Jesus' hair. This isn't a bleach job, nor is it graying. White speaks of his moral and spiritual purity. His eyes aren't bloodshot. They're like a flame of fire. That means that they have this searing scrutiny, this searchability to them. You see, Jesus doesn't look past you as if you don't matter. He cares about you deeply. He doesn't look at you as if he's sizing you up to figure you out. No, he already knows you perfectly. And he doesn't look to you as if he needs anything from you. Jesus is sufficient in and of himself. But Jesus does look through you. His searing eyes. His stare penetrates and uncovers the real you. You can't hide sin or play the hypocrite under Jesus' gaze. And Jesus' brass feet. That doesn't mean he has a lead foot. Brass is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper keeps its shine, but it bends. Brass, though, is the mixture of strength and endurance. Thus, when Jesus puts his foot down, his brass foot, he means it. He's emphatic. And the voice of Jesus is like the sound of many waters. Literally, like a waterfall. I'll never forget standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls. You can scream into the ear of the person standing next to you, but it'll never register. The water drowns out all other noises. You see, Jesus had spoken to John while on earth. For 60 years, John now has been listening to the still small voice, the whispers of the Holy Spirit. But now this is different than either. The lion roars. Jesus' voice now is like a waterfall. It drowns out all other noises. You know, today we're surrounded by competing opinions, media blares, talk shows, and pundits, and blogs, and spin. But when Jesus speaks, he muffles all other influences. He gets our attention. And in his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars. Verse 20 explains this. Drop down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you, you saw are the seven churches. The lampstands are the churches and the stars are their angels. Now it could be 
that every church has a guardian angel. That's an interesting thought. If that's true, I'm sure we keep our guy working overtime. But the Greek word translated angel, it simply means messenger. Thus, some folks translate the term pastors. Not to say that your pastor is an angel. Not hardly. But pastors are the messengers of Jesus to his church. Either way, whether stars are angels or pastors, the point is, is that they're both in the Lord's right hand. And this is the hand that speaks of authority. Thus, any authority vested in the church comes from Jesus. Every pastor is accountable to that right hand. Finally, John describes Jesus' overall countenance. It was like the sun shining in its strength. I mean, eyeballing the glorified Christ was like looking directly into the sun. His glory blinds us to every other interest on this earth. And then John writes, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He just wiped me out. He just leveled me, man. I mean, on earth, Jesus and John, they hung out. By the campfire, by the lake. They were fishing buds. But now John sees Jesus in all his glory and it causes his knees to wobble. He hits the deck. The exalted Lord takes his breath away. Before Jesus, John is speechless. He's motionless. You know, I'm sure that when President Obama plays one of those pickup basketball games with his aides, it's lots of fun. In fact, I'd love for him to invite me up to one of those games. But trust me, in, a fi in the final seconds of one of those games, nobody runs out and hacks the president. I mean, if he's on a breakaway, you just let him go to the, just give him the basket. You don't risk injuring the commander-in-chief. Even if he's your pal, you treat a president differently. And the same is true with Jesus. At his first coming, we learn that Jesus wants to be our friend. But this second revelation of Jesus reminds us that he's not like any other friend. Don't you ever call Jesus your homie. He's nobody's homeboy. Jesus expects and he deserves our reverence and our respect. John collapsed at his feet and worshipped him. And notice Jesus' reply to John. It's so beautiful. But he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus picks him up. Picks John up and he encourages him again. Hey, Jesus' clothes and his hair and his eyes and his feet and his mouth are very different than we saw at his first revelation. But there's one thing about Jesus that hasn't changed. His heart. He still has a heart that loves and encourages his disciples. And that's when Jesus says, And I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus has got those keys. If you're concerned about heaven and hell, and what's going to happen to you when you die, Jesus is the go-to guy. He's the one who knows. He's the one that can decide. Trust me, Buddha and Mohammed... And Oprah, they got no say in the matter. Jesus has the keys to afterlife and end of life. 
He alone decides when you die and where you go. So if you're concerned about it, I'd suggest you consult Jesus. We'll give you that opportunity at the end of the service this morning. Well, John closes the chapter with a helpful outline of the book of Revelation. The angel says to him, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now the things which you've seen, this is chapter 1. It's what we've just read. It's the vision that John receives of the risen, glorified Christ. The things that are, are chapters 2 and 3. Jesus' seven letters to these seven churches. John, you see, was living in the church age, and it has lasted now some 2,000 years. But then the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 22, are the things which will take place after this. Once the church age ends, once the church is caught away, then sweeping judgments will pave the way for the ultimate triumph of King Jesus. So, what's next in God's plan? Jesus is next. He's the A to Z. He's the beginning and the end. Let this revelation burn into your heart. Look to the glorified Christ and you'll find everything you need for victory.